This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Club W, leading the grape-to-glass wine revolution. Answer just six simple questions at clubw.com, and their algorithm will create a palette profile just for you. Get wine directly to your door, perfectly customized to match your taste. For 50% off your first order, go to clubw.com slash culture. And by bowlandbranch.com, the company that makes luxury bedding affordable. Get the nicest sheets you've ever owned for about half the price of what stores and boutiques are charging. Order right now and they'll give you 20% off your first order, plus free shipping. Go to bowlandbranch.com, that's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com, and use the promo code CULTURE. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, The Room Where It Happens edition. It's Wednesday, December 16, 2015. On today's show, The Big Short is the new movie based on the nonfiction bestseller by Michael Lewis. It stars Christian Bale, Ryan Gosling, Steve Carell, and Brad Pitt. Quite a lineup. And then genre and box office have both burst wide open on Broadway thanks to the hip-hop musical Hamilton. We all saw it. We'll now discuss it. And finally, should scholarly work be less, not more, accessible? We discuss a wonderfully counterintuitive argument from The Guardian. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. So it looks like you objected to last week's title a little bit out there on Twitter, huh? An abomination, I think, was the... uh, was the, yeah, why uh, did you cave? You you caved, but I don't know why. Well, first of all, I I, I noted that you know the multi layered, soul deadening bureaucracy that is Slate dot com. <laughs> I mean, I think we're now in a ninety story building, <laughs> rows and rows of desks, men hunched over. Uh, wearing green visors, quivering uh, at the thought of Julia Turner pausing before their desk um, and and lacerating them with an icy stare. That's accurate, right? Uh, 100%. <laughs> okay, so within the confines of that Weberian nightmare, someone posted the title to our show as It's Showbiz Inside when the title was Baby, comma, It's Showbiz Inside, which would have allowed at least 4% of our audience to actually get the joke. Oh, we'll speak to Anne about that. Yeah, well, heads are going to freaking roll. Maybe you should direct those laceratingly icy stares in a slightly more tactical direction, Julia. (laughs) That was an unsalvageable title, baby or no baby. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Just like this is an unsalvageable opening to the show. (laughs) Let's just fight about this for, you know, just every episode for years to come. Sounds good. And Dana Stevens, the film critic for Slate.com. Dana, how are you? Greetings. Good morning, Stephen. All right. Well, let's move right in. Oh, do, Julia, do we have any business? or No, except for to announce that the Slate Plus segment of the show will be an interview with Nick Bertel, the composer of both our theme song and the score to The Big Short. He's going to come on and chit-chat with us about what it was like to score that movie and all of the interesting choices that he made, including the Mouse Click Symphony that he wrote for it, a symphony made entirely of computer noises. 
Oh, and I totally lied. We actually have one other piece of business as well, which is a programming note. Next week, I am on vacation, and we are taping the show a little bit early, which means although next week everyone will be discussing Star Wars, we will not be discussing Star Wars on the show. Instead, the week following, we will do a very special show that will feature me, Stephen Dana, discussing Star Wars, both the new movie and the whole freaking thing, and then also our annual call-in show. We haven't done one yet this year, so please call in with your questions, your complaints, your queries, the things you wish we had talked about, the things you wish we would revisit, uh, any inquiries that you think it would be interesting to hear us answer. Call 201-890-FEST. That's 201-890-3378. And leave your delightful questions for us. It's always very fun to hear what you have to ask us. So hit us again, 201-890-FEST. All right, now we can do a show. All right. Um, the Big Short is the new movie based on the nonfiction bestseller by Michael Lewis. As I said, it stars Bale, Gosling, Carell, Pitt. It's co-written and directed by Adam McKay and tells the story of misfit sleeper cells throughout the financial world who saw what no one else did, that there was a nearly universal complicity in a culture-wide fraud to misprice mortgage debt. So they shorted the mortgage market and made a huge fortune. All right, why don't we listen to a clip? But first, Julia, you want to set this one up? Yeah, what we're hearing here is a banker played by Ryan Gosling pitching the team of bankers led by Steve Carell. And he comes in and gives kind of a show-busy presentation about the opportunity, the financial opportunity to bet against the overinflated housing market. And he does this with a prop, the prop being a Jenga tower, uh, which you'll hear. You'll hear some uh, clinks and chinks of Jenga tower in the clip. And no one's paying attention. No one is paying attention because the banks are too busy getting paid obscene fees to sell these bonds. But wait, you are the bank. When you work for the bank, I bet your margins are pretty nice and fat. Let's not talk about my margins, by the way. Being nice and fat, that's a nice shirt. Do they make it for men? Aren't you the bank? I work for the bank. I don't think like a bank. Big bank, small bank, I like to make money. All right? Let me put it this way. I'm standing in front of a burning house. And I'm offering you fire insurance on it. A's, zero. B's, zero. Double B's, zero. Triple B's, zero. And then that happens. What is that? That's America's housing market. All right, well, Dana, this is quite a vivid portrayal of um, criminality throughout American capitalism. It's a very funny movie. I think it's getting good notices. What did you think of it? You know, I I loved I was blown away by it and I was surprised at my blown awayness because I went in sort of thinking, do we need another drama, comedy, any sort of cutting investigation into the housing market right now on the film market in the same year that 99 Homes came out and a couple of years after Margin Call came out and, and then a few years ago, Inside Job, the great documentary about the collapse of 2008 that we discussed. It sort of seemed like this was the, the wrong moment for such a movie to come out and what could it really bring that was new. And as it turns out, I feel like this movie digs back into that time with a fresh energy, with a different eye, with just as much outrage as you know we all felt at the time that it happened. And and with more, I think, insight and uh, and cleverness about how to explain what happened to the audience without talking down to us at all. So I found that incredibly refreshing. And just on the formal level, I love that this was such a heterogeneous movie. It was such a crazy mix of, of different styles of pop cultural montages and comic scenes and tragic scenes and a huge cast of characters. It was really this kind of like boiling, bubbling carnival of greed and excess, but also of, unlike, for example, The Wolf of Wall Street, of, you know, some real moral probity about that excess. And I don't think that you can ever accuse this movie of, which some critics, including me, did accuse The Wolf of Wall Street of, of kind of reveling in the very excesses that it's trying to condemn. Mm, It was kind of the anti-spotlight in a way, wasn't it, Julia? Uh... Why don't you talk more about that, Steve? That sounds like an interesting (laughs) idea, but it sounds like your thought, not mine. Steve, I really thought this movie was kind of the anti-spotlight. Why don't you talk more about that? Explain my ideas for me, please. (laughs) Um, Two things I liked about it most, I think, would be the performances. I thought everyone was terrific. I thought Ryan Gosling in particular was mesmerizing. Steve Carell emerging as a really as a legitimate kind of great American actor. I thought Brad Pitt was... Very good. He has to play an unusual role for him, the sort of bearded, weirdo, sage, skeptic. Doesn't seem to be right up his alley, but he does a nice job with it. The second thing I liked about it was, uh, most about it was, um, 
it performs a real public service, a huge public service, by using the pretext of these misfits, great weirdos who saw through that fraud. The movie takes us on a tour in each corner of the culture, right? It shows you how everybody went along with what they knew wasn't untruth in order to, in a sense, in order to bank a fee. And I think over the last eight years or whatever it's been, we've forgotten how extensive that fraud was. Because no one was prosecuted, we failed to see the full uh, criminality of it, and the movie uses the word criminality. And also, it really does make the point that in addition to being preposterous, it was le- it was legitimately unjust that these repulsive financial service elites control in a, what are, in a sense, our pooled savings, right? That's the huge fraud that probably is still going on in some way. Um, so I quite like the movie. Now, I will say very quickly, as to the anti-spotlight, I'm just more inclined to like a movie like Spotlight that doesn't have an extreme extremely self-conscious verite style, a lot of jump cutting, uh, breaking of the fourth wall. Uh, They decided to, and Julia, here I will ask a question. I'm very curious to know what you think. They made the movie didactic in a very specific way. So they put Selena Gomez at a blackjack table, breaking the fourth wall and explaining what a CDO was, or I can't remember what exactly. They put some sexy blonde whose name I don't remember in a bubble bath with a glass of champagne to Wait, explain. Let me a... jump in and say that it was Margot Robbie from Wolf of Wall Street. So the casting of that woman was not just random blonde bimbo. It was a sort of callback to the earlier. It was movie. like specific blonde bimbo who featured in a right. different movie about the accesses of Wall Street. Right. So, so there are two ways to read this. One is that they trusted the audience to care about the technical details of the fraud, and the movie doesn't shy away from it. it explains what a tranche is, what a CDS is, on and on and on. Uh, on the other hand, you could say, Julia, that they didn't trust the audience and they had to put, you know, fetching women in bubble baths in order to um, squeeze it in. But wasn't, yeah, that a, wasn't that a joke on the whole idea of talking down to the audience? I mean, Margot Robbie proceeds I, but, to not talk down to the audience at all and to give a very sophisticated explanation of collateralized debt obligation or whatever it was. But yeah, but then, Dana, come on, you're not telling me that that's also strategic, that that's an attempt to say, ah, if we just try to get it in expositionally, we're going to lose people, or it's just going to fill the actors' mouths with rocks. So, I know, let's get, this is very much Adam McKay, right? The influence of McKay, who co-wrote and uh, directed it. Anyway, Julia, you I mean, I'm not sure I think it's the influence of Adam McKay. I mean, I I agree. I think it's interesting that everyone is describing this movie as the least condescending of the movies, because in some ways, on a pure structural point, the notion of inserting these little explainers in the middle of the action seems more condescending structurally. But in the execution, I think it's less condescending because there's it's sort of clever and winking and it feels like makes you feel like you're part of a, a fun joke with a team of caperers who's like, let's make this revisitation of total calamity and moral abyss and criminality and chaos and injustice that never went punished feel, you know, like we're all in Ocean's Eleven together and, and the rules are all bendable and we'll just bend them here for you and and put a blonde in a tub for kicks. I mean, to me, the hand I saw is Adam Davidson, who was one of the creators of Planet Money, was one of the advisors on this movie. And these were Planet Money segments. It was literally Planet Money segments. I mean, one of the great tools that Planet Money uses is the elaborate explicatory metaphor. And I, I have no idea whether he had a role in, in this conceit particularly, but I've, I was like, oh, these are Planet Money episodes. Someone was saying they seemed like the Vox explainers inserted into the movie. And I was like, no, no, they're not because Vox explainers are straight and they don't use metaphor. They're just straight. And this was sort of the inventiveness and brio of that spirit of financial reporting I thought you could feel in the movie. I thought they worked. I mean, I I think the notion of it being the anti-spotlight I, I've just I've been meaning to talk about how this was really the anti-spotlight. But I but I see what you mean. It's like it's it's instead of just quiet, deliberate, restrained methodical, bureaucratic, boring scut work leading up to a gigantic kind of catharsis of journalistic achievement, what you have here is like all of this showbiz hustle. There's so much frenetic hustle in the movie, um, you know, from the jump cuts and the and the sort of montages and the random shots of scudding clouds and Tom Cruise and, you know, hip hop video clips that, that are montaged through the piece to give it a sense of mood and tone and time um, to the explainers, to the performances, all of which are like a little over the top, you know, they're all over the top. Yeah, in ways funny that wigs, work. weird costumes. Bad, bad wigs. I mean, Ryan Gosling's 
Ryan Gosling steals this movie from a bunch of other big stars. He's Agree. he's this amazing, compelling creepazoid, uh, and it is so fun to be in his company. He's sort of the narrator of the movie. He's great. And I was trying to figure out, I still am not sure that I thought the movie particularly needed to exist, but but one thing that came to me much more strongly in this movie than in the original book, and I will confess here that I read the book when it first came out, whenever that was, uh, and so apologies to Michael Lewis if I'm misremembering it, but I remember the book's focus being much more on the idiosyncrasies of these characters who, who through quirks of their personality or through being misfits or being a little bit off kilter or, you know, kind of Billy Bean style in the classic bunny ball Michael Lewis mode through quantitative analysis and not getting caught up in sort of the hike, the hype or the gut or the conventional wisdom were able to cut through and see and predict uh, this crash before others did. I remember the book being much more focused on how the personalities and instincts and drive of these people allowed them to predict the future. And the movie, to me, seemed much more interested in its second half in the kind of moral complication of that. And and that part of the problem is the only people, part of the tragedy of this whole story is that the only people who understand the system well enough to even be able to predict or understand the crash are people who are fundamentally only driven to that understanding by their own pursuit of money. I mean, they Mm -hmm. themselves are bankers. They themselves are only looking for these angles and edges because they want to make a fortune. And they they have a bunch of people depending on them who are trying to make fortunes in unusual ways. And there's no, you know, the regulators are clueless and out to lunch. The the ratings agencies are clueless and out to lunch. Like the, the people who... You have to be basically a, a misfit savant to even get it. Mm-hmm. And then once you get it, still fundamentally your incentives are to make the money. And the, and to me, the thing that brings this, this movie above, I think, some of the other movies we've discussed in this realm is that it combines that sense of brio and fun with this real reckoning at the end of what it means for all these people that fundamentally, even though they see this coming and, and to varying degrees feel moral agony at what this means for the lives of the people whose finances will collapse, they themselves are all in it for the wrong reasons. And I think you see that most clearly, that that dilemma in in Mark Baum, the character played by Steve Carell, who's based, I believe, on Steve Eisman is the real life investor that he's somewhat loosely based on. But he, I think, is the one is the one character that undergoes some kind of moral trajectory who doesn't remain like Ryan Gosling, just a, a huckster the entire time, and who starts at, at the end to, to go around to financial conferences in this Cassandra-like way, prophesying the, the fall of the financial system and, and being listened to by no one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good day, Dan. I totally agree. Julia, also, I just think that was brilliant analysis of the movie. I mean, and, and it's really brought home by Pitt's speech to two of the more lovably callow people who are making the big short trade, where he says, don't high five don't self-celebrate here. When this all crashes down, it is going to take the American economy with it. It's going to take the housing market with it. And it's going to take many, many ordinary people's equity along with it. Look, at any given moment, there are people on both sides of any trade. There had to be a very big long position in order for there to be this big short position. And the movie does a great job of saying that that big long position was a moral failing on the part of an entire culture. Julia, I think the really interesting question about the movie is how do we feel about this band of misfits making a king's ransom on one trade? And I thought the movie did a better job than the original, than the source material did, saying that a a noble misfit narrative won't redeem the whole system, right? The fact that you can bubble up to the extent that we did and create totally artificial price system isn't redeemed by the whole thing crashing and a few oddities, human oddities, walking away with hundreds of millions of dollars. And I liked that the movie didn't overly romanticize them. I thought that was that was huge. I thought the form of this movie was the most exciting thing about it. And uh, and, and the fact that you didn't ever quite know what new style McKay was going to swerve to. Steve, when you called it cinema verite earlier, I was my brow was furrowing because in many scenes, it seems like the opposite. For example, directed their address to the camera, right? It's deliberately playful and kind of formally um, aware of itself. And I think that's just a really refreshing way to uh, to make an adaptation of a nonfiction book, right? Because typically the cinematic adaptation of a nonfiction book is at pains to make it seem as if all this really happened and just kind of cover up and, and, and gloss over the moments when it might be creating a composite or exaggerating or condensing. 
All right. Well, the movie is The Big Short. It's uh, co-written and directed by Adam McKay. It stars a bunch of very famous people you've heard of. Go to see it uh, and tell us what you think. I'd be very curious to know uh, how our audience reacts to it at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? Thanks, Steve. The Slate Culture Gap Fest is sponsored this week by Club W, the online wine club. Some people get a headache after they drink wine, but for a lot of people, it's the shopping part that's the real pain. So many choices, so much to learn, and so expensive. I can completely relate to this sentiment. I grew up raised by a total wine geek. I edited Slate's wine column for years. Uh, And only after decades of study did I find myself remotely semi-competent to sometimes buy the three varietals that I figured out that I like or even learn the whole thing about how in Europe, you, or at least France, you buy wine by the region, but some of those regions are associated with grapes. But if you're buying wine from here or other places, you buy by the grape. Like, it's demented. It's and de- the grapes have different names in every language and culture. Right, so you have to know the French, you know, like Pinot Gris and Pinot Grigio. Like, oh, Gris is gray in French and Grigio in Italian. Well, that's a cognate. There's a lot tougher ones than that. Right, but then also if you're buying Pinot Gris from France, it probably won't be called by that because it will be called something by the region, but then you can get Pinot Gris from Oregon, which I really like Pinot Gris from Oregon. By the way, that's one of the three wines that I know that I like when I see it somewhere. In any event, Club W changes everything. You can go to clubw.com and answer six simple questions, and their algorithm creates a palette profile just for you. Then they send wine directly to your door, perfectly customized to match your taste. Right now, Club W is offering Slate Culture Gap Fest listeners 50% off your first order when you go to clubw.com slash culture. So stop wasting time and money messing around at retail stores and start drinking wine you know you're going to love. That's clubw.com slash culture. All right, Steve, what's next? All right, moving on. Hamilton is a hip-hop musical about the life of Alexander Hamilton. It is the brainchild of creator Lin-Manuel Miranda, who wrote and stars in it. The musical tells the story from an improbable angle through the life story of the least mythologized, arguably, of the founding fathers, and in an improbable way. Largely, it's performed by people of color and in the hip-hop idiom. Um, It's now an improbably massive Broadway hit and an object of cultural veneration, as we have not seen in a long time. And I will add that my Sunday matinee ticket could have fetched me a cool two grand on the street if I'd been so inclined. I wasn't. I saw the musical. We all saw it. We'll discuss it in a second, but let's listen to a song. How does a bastard? Orphan, son of a whore and a Scotsman Dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean By providence, impoverished and squalor Grow up to be a hero and a scholar The ten dollar, founded father without a father Got a lot farther by working a lot harder By being a lot smarter By being a self-starter by fourteen They placed him in charge of a trading charter And every day while slaves were being slaughtered and carted away Across the waves he struggled and kept his guard up Inside he was longing for something to be a part of The brother was ready to beg, steal, borrow, or barter Then a hurricane came and devastation rained A man saw his future drip, dripping down the drain Put a pencil to his temple, connected it to his brain And he wrote his first refrain, a testament to his pain the word got around They said this kid is insane, man Took up a collection just to send him to the mainland Get your education, don't forget from whence you came And the world's gonna know your name What's your name, man? Alexander Hamilton Oh, man, it's so good. Okay, so we should stipulate here, I think, before we get too far into the discussion, that in some ways we're talking about this massively late because it has been clear now for months. I think we all started endorsing it and talking about it months ago that this show is a huge cultural phenomenon. And, you know, of course, Dana, along with John Dickerson, interviewed Leslie Odom Jr. and David Diggs, who play Aaron Burr and... Uh, Lafayette slash Jefferson in the show as part of our Superfest and and the Political Gab Fest has already done a segment about it. So in some ways, this is much discussed and we are late. And in other ways, this is much discussed and we are early because most of you listening, if you haven't seen it yet, can't buy tickets for market price uh, until 2017 at this point. But it's such a great and fascinating work that we think there's more to say about it. So we wanted to to dig in. Yeah, we're not giving today. away our shot to talk about it. Exactly. Throwing away our shot. Oh, no, I haven't listened to my soundtrack enough. I don't know my lyrics by heart yet. Back to the drawing board. Well, that's the other thing, too. The soundtrack's out. So a lot of people who are excited about the show are 
encountering it first through the soundtrack, which I think is also kind of an interesting way to meet the show. You know, it sounds like more cornball out of context, I think, is one thing you can say about the the soundtrack. But something that I I said after interviewing those two guys at the live show that I believe got cut out of the podcast, so I get to say it again now, is that since this is a sung-through musical, in other words, there's there's no recitative, there's no dialogue in between the songs, if you do listen to the soundtrack, you've pretty much heard an audio version of the entire show. Yeah, and actually one thing that Lin-Manuel Miranda talks about a fair amount in a, a, a profile of him in the show that The New Yorker ran uh, early, much earlier this year is that he really took Les Mis as an inspiration for it, which is another show that, that's, that's sung through and is more like an opera than a kind of classic musical that toggles back and forth between banter and, and breaking into song. And listening to the show again with that that insight in mind, it is really true how he could, the way that he kind of pulls themes from different songs and brings them back so that so that lines that had one meaning in Act One begin to take on a different meaning in the context of a new event. Uh, and it all sort of swirls together in, into a sweeping story. Yeah, it's like that leitmotif thing that opera does. So, you know, listening to it, not as, a, as an album with a bunch of different songs, but as like a whole concept soundtrack is the best way to hear it, I think, or cast mm-hmm. album, rather. Yeah. But I'm so curious. So I, I think I'm the one who endorsed it because I saw it at the public a while ago and loved it. What'd you guys think? Are we? Are you? Will either of you dare to stomp on the on the Hamilton hype? <laughs> well, okay. I will disappoint you all by saying um, I thought this was a work of nearly total virtuosity. Naysaying is almost completely forestalled in its presence. Um, it's profoundly moving to see both the promise of racial equality denied at the founding, simultaneous to the founding laying down the principles by which racial equality may one day happen. This is an omni-American classic through and through. It reminds you that hip-hop, the U.S. Constitution, and Broadway musicals are all ours and uniquely ours. Uh, It's as thrilled and patriotic I've ever felt at a work of American Art. And it reminded me that we've made unique contributions to global culture. I walked out on air. I, I should say almost completely loved it. Having said all that, I, I do have some small reservations, but they're quibbles at this point. Um, so let's let's hear from you guys. Yeah, I think maybe what struck me the most, and I agree, Steve, that I think it's a great American work of art. And I, I sort of agree with Jody Rosen's over-the-top assessment when he emailed us after seeing it at the public last year with this, uh, some sort of dramatic statement of this is the greatest work of art of the 21st century. I mean, it does feel like a, a piece of work that will survive this run on Broadway and become something, as Lin-Manuel Miranda has said, he hopes will happen, that's performed in high school auditoriums all over the country and is just a lasting piece of theater that could have many different iterations and interpretations. But I think maybe what's surprised me the most about it. And here, I just have to admit, I'm not a hip-hop listener, right? I'm like a white woman in my late 40s who hip-hop is neither aimed at, packaged for, nor generally speaks to, with the exception of some of the early rap that I connect to. And I was a little bit afraid that I would not be able to either follow the lyrics in this show, understand the references in the lyrics, or otherwise that I would somehow be excluded from the ideal audience for this show because I was like too white, too old, too something. And what I was amazed by, I think, was the degree to which I could understand every lyric. I may not have understood every reference, but I certainly um, felt caught up by the verbal wordplay and the, just the, the verbal pyrotechnics of, of the lyrics. And that was a real pleasure in seeing it that I hadn't looked forward to. Yeah, I mean, I think also in some ways the hip-hopness of it is slightly overstated. There's a ton of songs that really borrow from different eras in hip-hop mm-hmm. uh, in smart ways, but there's also a lot of R&B and the, the you know role played by the king has a couple, uh, a few songs. That are almost Elton John style, sort of Brit like pop. Brit-pop showstoppers. I mean, there's a ton of different musical modes that are being explored and experimented with here. And maybe I hadn't expected that. Maybe I was expecting that it was going to be more like a straight-up rap album and that it was going to be more uniform musically. And you're right, it's completely not. Yeah, and I think, to me, one thing that that I've been thinking about and listening to the album a ton in preparation for talking about it on the show with you guys and in thinking about what new there could possibly be to say about Hamilton at this point is that, to me, one of the things that's most exciting about it, I mean, there's the, the fact that it kind of reclaims the founding story of the country for people of all races and people of all backgrounds and and suggests the power of that moment and the tragedy of of the of how far we didn't go in that moment and the excitement about all the things that were accomplished in that moment all of that is incredibly powerful and it's true it's it's very strange to come out of a of a cultural experience feeling patriotic but you do feel patriotism i think uh, in a in a in a very 
deep way, or at least I did coming out of the show. But I also think the show is just the songs themselves strike me as emotionally quite subtle and sophisticated and nuanced, like the types of emotions that are being articulated or explored are not drawn with broad strokes at all. There, There's a ton in here about ambition and about how ambitious mostly men encounter the world and how they temper their behaviors and don't. And and a lot of that emotional subtlety and power, I think, comes in the, the dyad of Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton. And the show is very cannily framed around that relationship. I mean, Aaron Burr is essentially the narrator. In some ways, you might say, is the protagonist of the show. You know, he's, I think, the first to speak. He introduces us to Alexander Hamilton in the song we just heard. And he acknowledges right there in the opening that he he's quote, the damn fool who shot him in this dumbass duel. So many dumbass duels. Duels are crazy. That's another thing that's fun about the show. Um, oh, the staging of the duels is just so fantastic. I won't give it away for those who haven't seen the show, but the, the simplicity with which the duels are staged is just one of the wonders of the show. And the show's very smart about giving us three duels so we sort of understand the rules of the duels and all the ways that they might go before we get to the final one. But, you know, some of my favorite songs in the show are about about that kind of that ambition and the that the way in which human character intersects with world-changing events. I mean, I think that's the thing that's so unfathomable about the revolution, right? Is like mm. it's just a bunch of guys. It's just yeah. a bunch of guys hanging around in a bar and somehow yes. they overthrew colonialism and and found independence much earlier than many other countries and the fact I think sometimes it, it can feel you can feel so politically impotent right now. You feel like you're one of this mass of people and through the way our system works or seems to not work right now, it feels impossible to ever change anything. Uh, and so the the power of how it connects individual aspects of character to change, to me, feels like a really fresh subject for a work. And so some of my favorite songs are, you know, in the, in one of the first meetings, Burr, who's a little bit older, I think, and, and um, more ensconced in New York, giving Alexander Hamilton advice about how best to comport himself if he wants to actually get things done. While we're talking, let me offer you some free advice. Talk less. What? Smile more. Huh. Don't let them know what you're against or what you're for. You can't be serious. You wanna get ahead. Yes. Fools who run their mouths off wind up dead. You know, another great song about this is a song called The Room Where It Happens, which is one of the great earworms of the show, and just sung by Aaron Burr, who was not not in the center of power, who somehow, despite the advice he gave to a young Hamilton, has seen himself pushed to the outskirts. And Hamilton, despite his brashness and his less tempered temper, be the one who ends up in this crux of power while while Burr is sadly outside the door. Ah, Mr. Secretary. Mr. Burr. Sir. And did you hear the news about good old General Mercer? No. You know Claremont Street? Yeah. They renamed it after him. The Mercer Legacy is secure. Sure. And all he had to do was die. Yeah, that's a lot less work. We ought to give it a try. <laughs> now how you gonna get your debt plan through? I guess I'm gonna finally have to listen to you. Really? Talk less. Smile more. <laughs> Whatever it takes to get my plan on the Congress floor. Now Madison and Jefferson are merciless. Well, hate the sin, love the sinner. Hamilton. I'm sorry, Burr, I gotta go. But decisions are happening over dinner. And I just thought that portrayal of, uh, I mean, you know, it's not the freshest idea in the world. Like, I guess, right, the, the kind of Celieri, the, the Amadeus movie where you, from the perspective of Celieri, you see the genius of Mozart and you sense all of Celieri's frustrations around that. It's not, it's not the notion of making art about ambition and talent and uh, is, is, it's not like it's never been done before. But I felt like the particular emotional pitch that was being hit with some of these songs felt really fresh and interesting beyond just like frock coats and rap and the revolution, you know? Well, I mean, among other things, because as you say, it's 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 marrying this portrait, this character portrait of Aaron Burr as the excluded, ambitious politician to what is happening in the room where it happens, right? So that you sort of see that history has moved along not only by constitutional conventions, but by individual enmities and individual desires and ambitions. Well, here maybe I'll insert a, my tiny little quibble about about it. Um, 
I hesitate to even call it a quibble, but here we go. Um, one of my favorite things about it was the um, kind of wrap off between Jefferson and Hamilton. And, um, you know, it's a kind of these drop the mic moments where Jefferson and Hamilton have these opposed visions of what the American experiment is and should be. And they go at it, you know, kind of like Eminem and, you know, in, in eight mile. And it's, 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 it's just freaking brilliant is what it is. What I wished I had gotten more out of this in the second act was what Hamilton's vision for the country was and why it was so opposed to Jefferson's. And as I understand it, and again, I'm not a historian of, you know, early uh, nation at all, but my, my sense is that, you know, that there was a real deep philosophical difference between Jefferson's vision, which was a natural rights vision, as he wrote it into the declaration, that, you know, all men are created equal um, and endowed with inalienable rights. And for him, that had to be put into actual practice by the small farmer. You know, so it's very much rooted in the soil, his love of Virginia, and uh, the idea that self-possession means possession of a piece of land that's completely your own. And so he was an absolute dyed-in-the-wool Democrat, whereas Hamilton was an elitist and believed in centralized power. Uh, He believed in modernity as expressed through banking and a modern, highly developed, highly articulated, specialized economy. And that that was a serious philosophical difference that we live with to this day. Right. I mean, like, would the big short exist without Hamilton? You know, would the the system that's described in that movie, right? Julia, since you brought that up, I feel like I have to just shout out. You said something earlier about, you know, the, the room where it happens is, is full of men, which, of course, in the 1790s was was the case. It was it was, in fact, men and unlike the casting in the show, all white men who are in those rooms. But one thing the show does so amazingly, besides the cross racial casting in which actors of all races are put in all parts, regardless of the historical character they're playing, is that the women are a really important part of the show. In fact, the voice the last voice that you hear in the show is the voice of Philippa Sue, the wonderful actress and singer who plays Alexander Hamilton's wife. And in the first act, there's also this great almost Beyonce-style sing-off among the Schuyler sisters, which are the three sisters, one of whom Alexander Hamilton marries and, and one of whom Angelica becomes his kind of confidant and friend and in a way sort of the one that got away, right, for the rest of his life. And so these three women are also major, major characters in the music of the show and the story of the show. Their singing kind of interweaves through, even in the scenes where they may not be in the room where it happens, you realize how much influence and power they had as well. Daddy said to be home by sundown. Daddy doesn't need to know. Daddy said not to go downtown. Like I said, you're free to go. But look around, look around. The revolution's happening in New York. Shouting in the square It's bad enough there'll be violence on our shore No ideas in the air Look around, look around Angelica, remind me what we're looking for Eliza, I'm looking for a mind at work I'm looking for a mind at work I'm looking for a mind at work Alright, well the musical is Hamilton sell your soul to the devil and get a ticket and go see it and let us know what you think of it. Here's my suggestion. I think we should leave Hamilton on half the $10 bills and put DJ Cool Herc on the other half. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I knew you'd like that, Julia. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor. Julia, what do we have? The Slate Culture Gap Fest is sponsored by Bowl and Branch. There is one important thing you can do to help ensure having a good day, and that's getting a good night's sleep the night before. I can say this from a position of happy knowledge because my husband let me sleep in this morning for an extra hour while he did dealt with the kids. So I'm surely going to have an awesome day today. One company has set out to make this possible. It's Bowl and Branch. They've reinvented sheets and bedding with the sole purpose of making your nights more comfortable than ever. Their bedding is so soft, it will be a new standard of comfort you will measure everything else by. Dana, I believe you've been sampling and testing some Bowl and Branch sheets for a couple months now. Tell us your verdict. Yes, I'm so glad they placed an ad with us again because I don't think they've advertised on our show since I got my bowl and branch sheets, which I ordered because you, Julia, raved about them and their website looked great. And so I entered the promo code culture and got myself a set. And they were so wonderful. 
wonderful that I ended up getting them as a gift for my sister right afterwards. They're just the perfect sheets. The perfect column combination of, of sort of smooth and heavy, yet not sweat-making, you know? Yeah. That the unsweat-making qualities of the sheets are not mentioned in the official ad copy, I should stipulate. But, but you know the advertiser's really happy that I invoked sweat. Let's all talk about sleep sweat and the problem that it is. <laughs> Never sleep sweat again with Bowl & Branch sheets. Uh, plus, they will let you try them risk-free for 30 nights. I love this because I feel like everybody has their own particular sleep habits and tastes. And that's one of the problems with buying sheets is you buy a whole set of sheets and a set of sheets costs money. And then if it turns out to be too smooth or too light or too heavy or too sweat-making, or too sweat-making Whatever. There's nothing you can do about it, uh, but that is not the case with Bowl and Branch. So go to Bowl, that's B-O-L-L, and branch.com, and use the promo code CULTURE to get 20% off your entire order. Sheets, towels, blankets, duvet covers, everything, plus free shipping. And all their products come beautifully packaged in their signature boxes, which make them excellent gifts this holiday season. So again, go to bowlandbranch.com today for 20% off your entire order using the promo code CULTURE. All right, Steve. Sleepy hello to our next topic. (laughs) All right. All right, moving on. Those who call for academics to publicize their work often place importance on making complex research more accessible to general audiences, so writes James Mulholland in The Guardian. He goes on to say, somewhat counterintuitively, this attitude towards public engagement presents it as an intrinsic virtue. While perpetuating the idea that professors are brainy introverts, unable or afraid to talk to people outside their sphere of expertise, in fact, the opposite is true. The work of an academic is to talk about ideas. Dana, the point of this short, blunt, and I think uh, provocative essay is to drive home the idea that, in fact, the problem with academia isn't that academics don't speak a highly general or popularizable language. The point is that they do speak a somewhat institutionally introverted language. They're highly specialized. They discuss ideas with one another. And that's their primary obligation is to be a community of scholars communicating with uh, internally and bringing the public as a consideration into that will actually vitiate the importance of what they do. Not many people make this argument these days that it strike a note with you. Yeah, it's a very complex argument to try to make because – I feel like the minute this guy started to convince me that, yes, academia in various fields is a specialized discourse for a reason, because people are sort of building complex structures and theories and, you know, things that things whose real world influence and effect may not be felt for years down the line, decades down the line. Right. That's a that's a strong argument that he makes. At the same time, when you look at people within the world of academia and how it functions, I think many of them would be longing to have more opportunities to cross over to a bigger audience, to publish a book that would not only be, be read by other academics or to reach out to the community outside of their classroom or to have a blog that people read that could count as part of their academic resume instead of everything having to be you know, a peer-reviewed academic publication. So I think insofar as he is reinforcing the narrowness of, of the definition of what it is to work in the academic field, I don't agree with him. Insofar as he is saying, we don't have to dumb everything down, go ahead and use your jargon if that helps you to clarify ideas for your colleagues, then I agree with him. So that, mm-hmm. it, it, that's my double response. Dana, let me, if I could, Julia, just stick with Dana for one second. Uh, This is something I've been meaning to ask you about or talk to you about for years, and this article turns out to be the perfect excuse to do it, because he, in essence, brings it up, though he doesn't actually use the name Judith Butler. He uses the example of work in gender and queer studies that began taking place as much as probably 30 or more years ago, was widely derided by the general public. Uh, Judith Butler he doesn't say, but one recalls that Judith Butler was often singled out as a uniquely opaque prose stylist as an example of academia talking only to itself. And over the last 30 years, all we've done is watch as her ideas and the ideas of the queer theorists have slowly worked their way into general understanding uh, as a basic right to be yourself when it comes to gender, sexuality, and identity. You studied with Judith Butler was that something that occurred to you while you were reading this and thinking about these arguments? In other words, had your mentor been obliged to the public, she might not have been a kind of prophet. 
Yeah, of course, I was thinking of her the whole time. And I think he was, too, although maybe he didn't drop her name because he didn't want to have to be responsible for, you know, citing her work specifically. But Judith Butler is one example. I think I would argue that, you know, a lot of the Foucault-style deconstruction philosophy that was going on at that time that was always called out for being so obscurantist and obscure and unnecessarily jargony has, in fact, trickled down to a lot of the way that we talk about culture. But you most especially see it, I agree, in gender studies. And in the early 90s, when I was studying with Judith Butler, who actually came to Berkeley after I was done with my coursework, so I only audited her classes, and she was one of my thesis advisors. But I didn't take any, any direct classes with her, but was certainly exposed to that, that way of thinking and, and uh, those ideas. And at the time, I think even in the academy, her ideas were sort of strange. What do you mean gender is a construction? What do you mean it's not biologically given? I mean, things that now are at the point that every op-ed column will acknowledge them, right? Or, or every... Supreme Court case that's talking about marriage equality, we'll mention them, were at the time very fringy ideas that were very difficult to wrap your mind around. So that's a great example of someone who didn't dumb down their discourse and, you know, who had a great deal of power and influence anyway. But wait, there's a couple different ideas here. There's there's the question of whether the subject of your study should be controlled by the pressures to appeal to the public. And then there's the question of whether the manner in which you express your study should be accessible and transparent to the public. And I think those are two different questions. Like, of course, it seems to me in retrospect, and you know, one of the issues with this argument and one of the points that it makes is that it's easier to point back 30 years and say, aren't we glad that this work happened because it laid the groundwork for X? And if you're looking at the fields of academic study right now, you it's impossible to predict which, which subset of a subset of an academic journal article will somehow seem foundational in 30 years when there's some seismic shift in culture that that arises as a result of our deeper understanding of the issue. All of that seems completely reasonable to me and is a pressure that I feel editing a magazine. I mean, I have all these journalists at, at Slate's disposal. We can do all kinds of things. And if we only do the things that we know our readership is already interested in, then we end up doing less interesting work than if we take some chunk of our time and resources and shed shine lights where people don't know they're interested or or aren't aren't sure what the what the interest is yet, right? So the, all of that makes perfect sense to me. I'm not sure though that that is a sufficient defense for academic dis- discourse being kind of so dry and so talking to itself. Like I, I still don't understand why Judith Butler had to write the way she did. Mm. Exactly. But Judith Butler thought she did though, though, and that's an important distinction. She defended herself against this public charge of obscurantism many times, was forced to. And she said, quite simply, the proper vehicle for her ideas was the kind of language that she used because it, it, it took its place within a very specific tradition going back at least to the Frankfurt School of Culture Studies and Cultural Criticism that is a European and dialectical and in some ways very Germanic tradition. Uh, To fit into that tradition, you had to write in a certain way, and that's the way she chose to write. But listen, I would say freedom, there's freedom to and freedom from. Of course, academia represents the freedom to say whatever the direction of your scholarship takes you in, but it's also freedom from the marketplace. And that's the difference between being a public intellectual or a journalist and being a scholar. You know, everyone always emphasizes how the ivory tower walls cloister people inside. They, and that's true. They also ought to emphasize the kind of cacophony and the kind of public pressures that it keeps out. And I, I just do think that there's a value to writers of a certain kind, not all writers, but a subset of writers, scholars, tenured scholars, having the freedom to not put their ideas before the public and not to tailor their ideas for the public. And then I would also add arguments like the one Julia is making, I don't think that they're invalid. There ought to be some kind of a balance. But let's also aim them at the so-called STEM disciplines as well. You know, one really interesting thing is the degree to which people in the harder end of the social sciences, I'm thinking specifically mostly of economists, feel completely liberated from addressing a broad public very often. They hide themselves, uh, this ties in with the big short, they hide themselves behind dark math between, you know, behind walls and walls of truly obscurantist quantitative knowledge. And if they were forced to actually put into plain language the premises and conclusions of their research, which they very rarely are, we would find that an enormous amount of it really doesn't hold up. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a nice, like, I I thought the essay was mostly persuasive and that it's a nice counterpoint to all of these, like, why are you writing in jargon for three people 
arguments about academia. Like it, it, it was a strongly argued and persuasive counterpoint to that. But I do think the manner of communication, I mean, even the point about Judith Butler, and I'm, I'm beginning to speak wildly beyond my ken here, but it is interesting that those ideas had to kind of be channeled through this, these structures of thought and ways of writing about complicated thoughts that were almost obscurantist and made it feel like once you parsed the text and extracted the truth from it, or extracted, once you managed to extract meaning from it, that meaning felt hard-earned, I think. And I'm speaking, I should stress, on very, very scant experience of reading Judith Butler. But my experience reading texts like that, generally, you sort of come out of it, and when you when you feel like you can grasp a meaning, sometimes you feel like the meaning is subtle and specific enough that maybe it could only have been expressed in that weird way. But you do attach value to the meaning because of the extraction process in a weird way that seems slightly bogus to me. But I also wonder if maybe isn't in some ways strategic, right? Like the very plain spoken kind of human rights inflected uh, approach that you could imagine someone taking to speaking about the rights of queer people to define themselves and their personages in, in modern culture. That isn't the way that it first got articulated. And that's sort of interesting, too. Like in some ways, maybe it's easier to tease out something hard and world-changing through a through a complicated thicket where you feel like you've pulled the truth out as opposed to just say it baldly. I, I, I'm, I am speculating wildly and maybe totally wrong here. But wait, let me quickly say, sorry, Dana, that I agree with you, Julia, that one kind of rhetoric is appropriate to one kind of end. So George Orwell wanted to direct a certain kind of plain speech toward political euphemism because political euphemism was one way of covering up for murder and fraud. And plain speech held accountable the misusers of language. But there's another tradition which is more continental European, which is one needs to be alienated from the daily ways of speaking in order to understand how we're imprisoned within patterns of thought. And since thought and language and speaking are all intimately bound up with one another, if not close to being synonyms, you almost have to invent a new language or a new idiom in order to move people beyond it. So, I mean, thinking specifically about, you know, a, a Germanic tradition going back to, you know, Kant, Hegel, Heidegger, you know, and Butler, I mean, you can say a, a writer in English shouldn't be beholden to that style of writing, but Butler was. I mean, she cared very much about that tradition and wanted to be at least partially within it. So anyway. I think it's also worth mentioning, if we're going to keep on talking about Judith Butler, who was obviously not the only test case for this question. But since we're talking about her, that we're talking about her very early work, that book Gender Trouble that created all those conversations in the late 80s, early 90s, and that now she has moved on to a position that's much more that of a public intellectual, as I understand. She writes about mm-hmm. the war and about human rights and about Guantanamo, and she, you know, protests against Israel's current political system. And, you know, she, in fact, I think has been banned now from speaking in Israel because she's been so outspoken about that. But I think she occupies all kinds of places now that are not the place of the ivory tower intellectual writing obscurantist texts. Mm. All right. Well, no doubt we have in our listenership many people who are in academia or exiles from it. We'd love to hear from you. What do you think about uh, the use of ordinary or extraordinary language to communicate your ideas? The essay is in The Guardian. It's called Academics. Forget about public engagement. Stay in your ivory towers by James Mulholland. Come uh, leave us a note at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, moving on. Julia, we have one more bit of business before we go to endorsements. What what do you got? Yeah, I just wanted to take a moment before we endorse to remind our listeners about Slate Plus, which is both available for purchase this holiday season, but also available as a gift. You can purchase it as a gift for the diehard Slate fans in your life. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, let me remind you about the benefits of membership. For one thing, you get an ad-free podcast feed, a specialized ad-free podcast feed. Uh, And also in that feed, you'll find access to our bonus podcast segments. So for example, to Today, we're talking to Nick Bratell, the composer who uh, wrote our new theme song, uh, who also composed the score for The Big Short. So we'll talk to him about the score for that movie and his work on that show, available only for Plus members. You'll also, on the site, get access to our ambitious multi-part Slate Academies and so much more. No wrapping required. Give Slate Plus today. Visit slate.com slash give plus. All right, Steve, let's endorse. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse day. Nah, ah, ah, ah. What do you have? 
Well, since we were just talking about academia and the need of intellectuals to reach out to the public, I was going to endorse a blog written by a professor at Northwestern. I think I've talked about it before on the show. It's called Ludic Despair. Do either of you guys read or keep up with yeah, Jeffrey Scott? Yeah, I think you've Ludic endorsed Despair. it before. Yeah, I may have endorsed it, but I'm re-endorsing it because it has so much <laughs> to do with this topic. I recently discovered actually that that Chris Wade, one of our former video editors and producers at Slate, studied with Jeffrey Scott at Northwestern, and he was a fantastic teacher, which doesn't surprise me because his blog is so wonderful. So Ludic Despair is exactly the kind of thing that academics should get recognition for doing, that it should count toward their, you know, their academic resume, but usually doesn't. And it's really, really worth going to this blog every once in a while. He'll update it and he'll write about anything at all. Jeffrey Sconce is a professor, I believe, of film and communications at Northwestern, but he writes about pop culture and television and visual culture. His, his blog is also visually great. He'll just, he'll just pull down some crazy image from the internet or a film still or an album cover and write about it with this wonderful, witty, dark, kind of brilliant um, analytical mind. So Ludic Despair, written by Jeffrey Sconce, the blog, and you can also follow him on Twitter to see when he updates. All right, Julia, what do you got? I want to endorse a song, an old favorite, which I associate with this time of year. People sometimes ask us to do something, a counterpoint to our summer strut playlist, a, an autumnal mull playlist, a frosty, um, a frosty tromp playlist. And we don't, we don't. I don't think we will. Pumpkin spice playlist? Pumpkin spice playlist. We haven't quite gotten around to it or figured out exactly how to crack that nut. But the song Damage from the, Al- the Yola Tango album, I Can Hear the Heart Beating as One, is one of my absolute favorite songs. And I associate it with walking at night as the air gets chillier and given that it's like 70 degrees today or whatever the hell I feel like I can I can endorse an autumnal song in December and the association I think is purely personal it's like an album that I listened to massively I think primarily my sophomore year in college Uh, and I love that whole album and know it note for note but that song just conjures to me a chilly evening and you're loaded for bear and headed for the library to hunker down with some some thinking and some working and some extracting of meaning from texts and the world feels kind of full of friends and things to learn but that's not your business right this minute you're just out in the cold cold air it's a totally personal association but a great great song and a great great album so damage by yola tango that is such a great record yeah um all right so this week i am endorsing an essay on the internet by isaac Butler, who I believe uh, has written for Slate. We talked about his Hamlet essay just a couple weeks ago. Yeah, his Hamlet essay was one of us. Well, he wrote something called On Magic Mike XXL, Entertainment, Art, Fulfillment, and Big Dicks, that um, is everything I think about those Magic Mike uh, movies in one incredibly fucking smart argument. He agrees with me that they're terrific movies, but he's explained to me why I think that, which is uh, to perform a great service. But it's just a terrific work of criticism about these movies that I think people have been very ready to dismiss, but are thought through and really considered works of, of, of intelligent director driven movie making. And, um, he appreciates them as, as such. And then quickly, I want to endorse uh, revert to type and endorse a, um, food store in Hudson, New York called Talbot and Arding. These people are geniuses. And if you're ever in Hudson, New York, you should go in there because when you walk through the door, you're going to think you're about to get snobbed to within an inch of your life, food snobbed down to a tiny little self-hating nub because it's so beautifully presented and it's on first blush, you'll think that it's fussy and overdone. The truth is that is an inch deep and beneath that is an enormous amount of care and grace and warmth. It's an incredibly gracious place. And it, it, it just presents, um, the, I, I should give a little bit of the history of it. It's, it's two women who've been in the food industry for 20 or 30 years, one of whom was integral in the creation of the Cowgirl Creamery at Point Reyes out in California, kind of legendary place. Um, they just understand food, but also cheese better than any place I've ever been. Um, and, uh, you know, the chances of you being in Hudson, New York are minimal, but, uh, if you ever are, it's really worth going in there. All right. Well, thank you, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. 
The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster on iTunes.com slash Panoply, and our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll, we'll see you soon. the most delicious, entertaining, and bizarre parts of life in the big city with New York Magazine's collection of podcasts, available exclusively from Panoply. Tune into the Grub Street podcast for restaurant trends that'll soon be sweeping the country. Catch exclusive interviews with the stars of your favorite TV shows with the Vulture TV podcast. And check out Sex Lives for intimate discussions of sex in the real city. It's like taking a trip to New York from the comfort of your earbuds.